friends, as we, uh, as we come to the book of Exodus, it, it picks up right where the book of Genesis left off. At the end of Genesis, as a refresher, uh, Joseph, who was Abraham's great-grandson, had risen to a position of power within the Egyptian empire due largely to his, uh, his role in saving Egypt from a famine that otherwise decimated the region. As a result, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, allows Joseph to bring his family into Egypt where they could reside in peace and stability. So Joseph's father Jacob and all of his brothers and all of their families come to Egypt where indeed they do reside. And at the end of Genesis, we learn that Joseph died there having aged 110 years. So as the story of the Exodus begins, we learn that all of the descendants of Israel continued to dwell in Egypt even after Joseph's death. And for years, the children of Israel were fruitful, and they multiplied, and their communities and their families were growing. But after about 400 years, something changes in Egypt for the people of Israel. And we pick up our reading for this morning at that point. Uh, So if you would, please open your Bibles and join me in reading Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 8 and then read through the rest of the chapter. Friends, this is indeed God's word. Then a new king... Whom Joseph, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you, who are help, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Heavenly Father, this is, for many of us, a familiar passage, so we ask this morning you would give us ears to hear this anew, to hear this in a fresh way, to hear what it is that you would say to us through your holy word. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1937, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences created a new award Category that was going to be recognized that year at the 9th Annual Academy Award or Oscars Ceremony. And that category was the Best Supporting Actor category. 
Now, the intent of this award was to recognize outstanding performance in, uh, in, a, in a role while working in the film industry. And so the $10,000 question is, does anyone here know who the awardees were in 1937 for Best Supporting Actor or Best Supporting Actress? I didn't think so, neither did I. But for the record, for Best Actor, it was Walter Brennan for, the role, uh, for his role in the film Come and Get It. And for Best Supporting Actress, it was Gail Sondergaard for her role in the film Anthony Adverse. Yeah, I didn't know those either. But the Academy created this category because they recognized that within the, within the film or within the structure of a story, there are characters who are absolutely critical to advancing the plot of the story, even though they may not be the leading characters. They recognize that, that most, if not all, stories have these supporting roles without whom the story just wouldn't make sense. So as examples, I'd like you to think of uh, Rita Moreno, uh, who played uh, the role of Anita in West Side Story, not the focus of the story, but very critical to to keeping that story moving forward. Or think of um, Louis Gossett Jr. as he played that Marine Corps gunnery sergeant, an officer and a gentleman. He's not the main protagonist in the film. He's not the focus of the story. But certainly, the rest of that story would not have made sense if not for Louis Gossett Jr.'s portrayal of that role, of that character. They aren't the lead characters, they aren't the focus, but they're still no less important to the plot. In this first chapter of Exodus, we are introduced to two characters who play a critical role in God's unfolding narrative for the people of Israel. Now, most Christians and most Jewish believers would also agree that Moses is the main character in the book of Exodus, meaning that that we believe and we agree that Moses is the primary vehicle through which God is accomplishing his purposes during the time of the Exodus. But Moses was not alone in what he accomplished. And here we meet two supporting characters in Exodus chapter 1, Shifra and Puah. So who were they? What did they do? Why did they do it? And what does this tell us about being a supporting character in God's unraveling story? First, who were they? Uh, well, we're fortunate in that everything we know about this, these two women, that is to say everything that Scripture tells us about these two women, is found right here in this chapter. So in one sense, we don't know much about them. If we look back at verse 15, we see that the, uh, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and this phrase here, Hebrew midwives, uh, could also be accurately rendered as midwives to the Hebrews. So we don't know for certain if they were uh, ethnically Hebrew or they were ethnically Egyptian, and I would argue that it really doesn't matter all that much, but we do know that they were midwives. We know that they worked with babies. That's the one, that is one thing that we know about them. The next thing that we know is that the king of Egypt did, in fact, know them. Again, verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwife. So he is speaking directly to these two women. Now, there, there is some discussion as to why the king of the known world would be speaking to these two specific midwives. And some argue that, that Shifra and Pua perhaps had leadership roles within the midwife guild and that the, the king of Egypt was simply giving them the instruction and they would then convey their instruction to the other midwives and it would, the, the instruction would make its way out through the community. That's one point of view. Others argue that Shifra and Puah were, in fact, the only two midwives for the entire Hebrew population, which I think is interesting, given how much they were procreating at this time. I would argue that it probably doesn't matter all that much, but what we do know is that the king of Egypt knew them. He knew who they were. 
And the last thing that we know for certain about these two women, and this is probably the most significant point, the last thing we know about them are their names. And the fact that we know Shifra and Pua, these two seemingly blue-collar workers' names, is significant. And friends, I think it's intentional. It's intentional that God in his wisdom saw fit to memorialize these two women permanently in the pages of Scripture and that they should be remembered and regarded in his holy word. It didn't matter that they were merely midwives. It didn't matter that they were not of, of, of a royal background or, or of some place of prominence. Who they were and what they did was deserving of a place in this unfolding story. And, and we know that, that their position was held in that regard because we can identify their distinction by asking a simple question. What was Pharaoh's name? You know as well as I that Pharaoh is not a name. Pharaoh is a title. So we can ask, what was the king of Egypt's name? In truth, this is a point that's not completely unknowable. It's, it's possible that we could do some research and look at some extra-biblical sources and try to align some historical timelines. So if we were asked, uh, who was the king of Egypt during the, the beginning of the time of the Exodus, we could respond by saying, well, I've, I've, I've studied Egyptology and I've cross-referenced the archaeological record with the biblical record and, and studied the population dispersions at that time. And I've overlaid the biblical narrative, which says that one of the storehouses houses was named Ramses and there were many other pharaohs named Ramses at that time. So maybe, probably, the king of Egypt at the start of the Exodus might have been named Ramses. Okay. Well, do you happen to know the name of two blue-collar midwives uh, at the time that when Moses was born? Oh, yeah, that's easy. Shifra and Pua. Well, how do you know that? Because it says so in the Bible. Now, I'm intentionally reducing this quite a bit, but what I think the reader is to understand is that what these two midwives did, what they accomplished by the grace of God, was more worthy of memorialization than the most powerful man in the known world at that time. So let's pivot now to that point. What is it that Shifra and Pua did? And I feel that if we were teaching this lesson to a group of gathered Sunday school children, our kids would likely point out that what Shifra and Pua did was tell a lie. And on the face of the situation, that's exactly what's happened here. The king of Egypt gave a command that these two midwives were to commit infanticide. Shifra and Pua refused to carry out that command, and and then when they were confronted as to why they had not done what the king commanded, they told a lie. Look again at, at verse 18 and 19. The king summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And they answered, The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So not only did they lie, but they threw in a little backhanded insult as well, right? These Hebrews, they're not like your weak Egyptian women that need all kinds of support in labor. These Hebrews are old school, and they procreate in old school ways. So not only did Shifra and Pua defy the king's authority, but then they lied to his face about it. And both of these things would have been punishable by death. In a couple months, um, it's, it's interesting that uh, a new semester in seminaries will begin, and undoubtedly there will be first-year uh, biblical ethics students or first-year um, exodus exegesis students uh, who will be challenged with the point that we find here in this text. What does it mean that Shifra and Pua lied? 
And it's, it's possible uh, that they will be asked by their professor, what does it mean that they bore, for, uh, bore false witness? And perhaps some of them will be assigned this text that we're looking at for Exodus, and, and the other half of the class will be assigned Exodus 20, which is God's first revelation of his ten words or his ten commandments. And the, the professor will encourage a healthy debate about the primacy of God's law or the primacy of the actions that, that we see God's people pursue before the law was delivered. And inevitably, some will argue that, well, God's law had not yet been revealed to Moses, so Shifra and Pua would not have been beholden to the restrictions therein. Others will argue that their actions when they lied were the lesser of two evils, and because of that, they were justified in what they did. Others will say that, well, they were not probably, they, not probably, they certainly were not guided by God's law that had not yet been revealed through Moses, but perhaps they were guided by other things that God said to the patriarchs. For instance, in Genesis chapter 9, we remember that God said to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then God would later say to, to, uh, to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So some will argue that this early revelation of God's will for man had been preserved throughout the Hebrew community and Shifra and Pua were simply living it out. And then, of course, at perhaps one of the more reformed seminaries, someone will undoubtedly point out that John Calvin said of these two women, he said of their actions that they committed an inexcusable sin and that the lie that they told was highly displeasing to God. Now, John Calvin would further explain that there is, there is no act, virtuous as it may seem, if committed by a man or committed by a person that is without the stain of sin. But this text tells us that these midwives were not judged, nor were they rewarded for their deceiving Pharaoh. It's twice mentioned, and Calvin would point this out as well, it's twice mentioned that Shifra and Pua feared the Lord. They feared God, so they did not do what the king told them to do. And then also, because they feared God, he would give them families of their own. Now, fear is a subject that is wrestled with throughout the scriptures. Specifically, fear of the Lord is something that we encounter over and over in the Bible. And I would imagine for, for many of us here, the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the fear of the Lord is Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the begin, beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We find a, a message very similar in Psalm 110 where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Now, outside of the wisdom literature, we also find this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah, when in, uh, in Isaiah 11, where he's describing uh, the characteristics of the one who's going to come forth uh, from, the, from the shoot of Jesse, he's describing the characteristics there, and he says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then even Jesus, in his teaching... When Jesus is teaching the parable of the persistent widow, he's, he's negatively describing the characteristics of the unjust judge, and he says the judge is someone who neither feared God nor respected man. And indeed, there are many other instances where we find this concept addressed throughout the Bible. The point being that as we study the scriptures, or as we share the gospel with non-believers, or as we are explaining what it means to live the Christian life to our friends or our neighbors, inevitably... The fear of the Lord as a biblical concept is going to come up. We see it time and time again. Fearing the Lord is not only something that we encounter, 
but it's something that's held in a high and righteous regard in Scripture. And that's where this, this biblical concept of fearing the Lord is going to come into conflict with our modern precepts of what we think of when we think of the term fear. Today, we often lump fear into one of two categories. Fear is either something to overcome or it's something to avoid. Today, people in many situations uh, will see fear as that thing that keeps them from living their best life, right? If, if only I could overcome my fear of public speaking, then I could apply for that job that requires a lot of public speaking, which is something that I really want to do. Or if only I could get over my fear of flying, that I could go off and see all the things in the world that I want to go and see. If only I can get over my fear, then I can live life to the fullest. So it's this milestone, it's this thing to overcome. On the other hand, uh, sometimes we all do, and, and certainly some of us more than others, we, we use fear as the barometer of things to avoid. We, we treat fear like that thing that keeps us away from the things that may bring us harm. Sometimes it's deserving, and sometimes it's not. So folks today may even describe that type of fear as a healthy fear. I'm sure you've all heard that term before. Some would say that those healthy fears help us from taking unnecessary risks. Indeed, perhaps it is a healthy fear of grizzly bears that will prevent us from wanting to go pet a baby grizzly bear that we may come across while we're hiking in the woods. And friends, I would suggest that if you happen to be hiking in the woods and you come across a baby grizzly bear, perhaps that's not the day to try to overcome your fears. That's not the day to say, you know what, I've always wanted to hug a baby grizzly bear, but I've always been afraid to do it. But today's the day I'm going to overcome that fear because likely if you see baby Mama's not far away. So perhaps that's the day to give in to your, your healthy, natural fear of grizzly bears and avoid that cub altogether. But regardless of how our culture treats fear, whether it's a milestone to overcome or a barometer of things to avoid, our cultural conception of fear does not apply when we're talking about the fear of the Lord. Because God is not something you can avoid, and God is certainly not something that you can overcome. To truly fear God is to see God for who he is in all of his glory and in all of his holiness. And fearing the Lord necessarily results in the, in the believer ordering his life and ordering her life after that which God requires. As one commentary very usefully puts it, the fear of the Lord is absolutely necessary to having a right relationship with God. And I think one of the best illustrations of understanding the ultimate fearsomeness of God is actually found in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And I wonder if you remember the part in the story where the children are in Narnia and their new friend, Mr. Tumnus, has just been taken away by the special police. And they're very upset about what has just taken place. And uh, they, they're at a point where they're speaking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. If you're not familiar with this story, I apologize, but go read it. It's fantastic. But they're speaking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they're they're concerned about Mr. Tumnus, and they're saying, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to help rescue him? Because the children are beginning to feel guilty about what has happened to Mr. Tumnus. And then Mr. Beaver, in his sage wisdom, responds, yes, there is something that can be done, but there's not much you can do, child. Remember that point? And what does he say, uh, what does he say next? He says, Aslan is on the move. I wonder if you remember where you were the first time you heard that or first time you read that. Aslan is on the move. And there was something in that name when they said it that sparked in the children's ears. And they're like, Aslan, who is this Aslan? And Mrs. Beaver says, you don't, you don't know who Aslan is? 
why he's the Lord of the wood. And, and this begins a discussion going back and forth between the children and the beavers about who Aslan is, who the children are with regard to him. And then Lucy, of course it was Lucy. Lucy asked this question, is, is he a man? Asks Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Do you see the point that Lewis is illustrating here? Do you see the image of the fearsomeness, the lion character of God? Aslan is on the move. And you see the, this, this picture of the ultimate authority, the ultimate power mobilized to accomplish his own will. I mean, how could something so powerful, so all-inspiring all and so fearsome do anything other than strike fear in the hearts of everything and everyone that he encounters. And indeed, it is the great paradox of the Christian faith, isn't it? It is the great paradox of what we, of what we believe, that God is so fearsome and so powerful that the only safe space is with him, at his right hand, by invitation. God the Father invites his children to dwell with him by virtue of the work and action of Jesus Christ so the only safe space is right there with Jesus. He's so fearsome that the only thing left to fear, only thing left to do with that fear is to be with him. You cannot run away from the lion, nor can you overcome him. So, someone may ask, if, if one truly does fear the Lord, does that mean that the rest of our fears will go away? Friends, no, and not by a long shot. The reality of our living in our fallen world guarantees that there will never be a shortage of things to be afraid of. For the believer, though, we fear God more. We fear God more than the things that we encounter in our daily lives. Yes, we are afraid of, you choose, right? We're, we're afraid of political instability or, or financial concerns. We're afraid of violence in our streets. We're afraid of what, met, what may happen to our children, but we fear God more. And there is no reason to think that Shifra and Pua didn't fear Pharaoh. They would have had every reason in the world to be afraid of Pharaoh. He was a fearsome and deadly guy. He was ruthless. But they feared God more, and they feared God first. And this may be one of the reasons that the midwives were able to successfully deceive Pharaoh. Because fearing something more than Pharaoh at that time would have been just unthinkable. The king of Egypt was the most, uh, the king of Egypt for most people, rather, was the ultimate figure. He was the thing to be feared. 
In fact, most people would have said that a healthy fear of Pharaoh at that time would have been the thing that would have preserved your life. If you want to stay alive, you fear Pharaoh. If you want to live happy, healthy lives, you fear Pharaoh. But not for Shifra, not for Pua. They feared the Lord first. And because they feared the Lord, they were able to stand up to injustice. Because they feared the Lord, they had the courage to manipulate and to undermine the ruler of the known world, ultimately contributing to his downfall, if you think about it. Because they feared the Lord, they were blessed with families of their own. And because they feared the Lord, God was able to use them to play a supporting but integral role in a much larger story, even though they probably had no idea that's what was happening at the time. And so we finish today by returning to the idea that we started with. The idea of not being the center of the story, but instead being a supporting player in someone else's narrative. I think there are a couple of things that stand out when we compare the theme of this morning's text with the themes that we encounter in our contemporary cultural America. I think most of us would agree that our culture right now is very focused on the self. What I know, what I think, what I feel, what I say, what I experience, how I walk, how I talk... Um, my truth, my identity, everything today is seen through the lens of the self. And when that happens, there are a couple things that result when we see the world through the lens of the self. And this is particularly true when it comes to the spiritual world, when we see it through the lens of the self. First, people no longer fear God. I mean, why would they? If the self is the center of spirituality, then the self is the center of worship. So this means that any, any spiritual need we have or any spiritual need that we perceive is ultimately self-servicing. And that is what God has become in many a Christian circle, some moralistic deity that services spiritual needs of people like a divine genie. I mean, if the self is the center of the spiritual world, why would you allow a big and fearsome and controlling creator God to have a seat at the table? That's inconvenient. That's going to encourage me to do things I don't want to do. That fits outside the self. People just don't fear God. Why would you fear something that you don't believe in? I assume many of you have also heard the term an irrational fear, and we would say that an irrational fear is irrational because it's unnecessary, and it's unnecessary because you are, are, are demonstrating fear against something that ultimately can't do you any harm. So in terms of the modern sensibilities of who God is and how we perceive God, many people on this earth perceive God today, God's not something to be afraid of. And fearing God would be an irrational fear. God's your buddy, right? God's your pal. God's there to pick you up when you are low and offer you words of encouragement when you're having a rough day. So when we view our spiritual lives through the lens of the self, we stop fearing God. But the other thing that happens that I think when we become self-centered spirituality is that we stop serving others. At least sacrificially, we stop serving others. And certainly today, you can go on social media and find many accounts of people doing kind and good things for other people. Praise God for the common grace that is demonstrated when we do see things like that. But gone are the days when those things happen in, in the background. Gone are the days where sacrificial service happens for the sake of service. 
Because now even today, those things that are done for other people are also done through the lens of Instagram and YouTube and look at the things that I'm doing. And when I did this thing for someone else, this is, how I, this is what I experienced going through it. This is not an altogether new occurrence. Things like this, of course, have been happening since the fall. But I would offer that the selfishness and the self-centeredness of spirituality that we are seeing today is more pervasive now than ever before. I think it would be easy for the church to say that, that we, the church, are victims of the cultural moment that we are experiencing. It would be very easy for us to say that. But I also think that it would be untrue, or at least a half-truth, because the church is not a victim of what's happening today. I would su- suggest that the church is part of the reason why we have arrived where we have arrived in our cultural moment. Around 40 to 50 years ago, um, American, global Christianity, but American Christianity in particular, shifted and became a very responsive religion. It was responding to the cultural themes of the day. Certainly you could argue that Christianity going back to the time of Christ was in response to a, to a cultural moment. But what I think is unique that's happened over the last 40 to 50 years is uh, Americans have, have identified that religion in America is now a, uh, a menu item practice, right? People see different religions as different menu item choices, and they see which one suits their individual needs. And I like this one because of the X, Y, and Z, this type of music, this type of belief. And they can simply select the one that they want and apply it to their lives. Now, in response to that, Christians saw that the gospel message was missing people because they began selecting other religions. And so, again, 40 to 50 years ago, people started developing evangelistic tracts. And perhaps some of you remember the, uh, the early tract, The Four Spiritual Truths. Remember that one? What was the first truth? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Not an untrue statement, but it's a great way to start a conversation. It's not a great way to explain the fullness of God to a new believer. And so we had these evangelistic tracts. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you all about it. What a way to start a conversation. And it worked. And thanks be to God that many people came to faith because of the conversations that were brokered in that way. The problem was churches began to see that those types of conversations were the things that were keeping people in the pews. And so slowly churches began to adopt different practices and different methods and different types of music or at least different messages in music that focused on the wonderful, God, the wonderful plan that God has for the life of the people in the pews and stopped focusing on the majesty and glory of God. And eventually those practices became like doctrine and things have changed. And what has happened now is that we've got several generations of people who think and who would profess to be Christians who think that they need to be the Moses of their own story. They think they need to be the center of their spirituality. And if they find they're not, they're just going to go somewhere else and do something else. Frankly, if I'm not the Moses in this story, if I'm, if I'm, a, if I'm a side player, I'm going, to, I'm going to find someone else who will tell me that I am the Moses of this story. It's a sad reality what we've come to, but I think that what we glean from this story in Exodus is that a rightful, righteous fear of God helps the believer understand his and her spot in God's unfolding narrative, which, by the way, is a wonderful plan for all of our lives, an inescapably wonderful plan for all of our lives. 
but it doesn't start with servicing my own spiritual needs and it doesn't start with servicing your own spiritual needs. It starts with understanding who God is and what God has done. He's not safe, but he is good. Let's pray. Father, you challenge us when we read of these men and women that you brought to our earth before us. You challenge us to understand who they were, what they accomplished, and what that tells us about you. And so when we think about fearing you, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts like Isaiah so that when we encounter you, we would see that we are a people of unclean lips and we would fall on our faces before you in awe and in reverence, recognizing your fearsomeness. But Lord, we also thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have a seat close to you at your right hand. Through him and what he accomplished, we thank you, Lord, that we are protected by the same fearsomeness that destroys sin. So be with us this week, Lord, we pray that we would live in light of your fearsomeness, that we would fear you, that we would not live our own self-centered spirituality first. All this we do pray in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.